Brought to you by Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Committed to bringing higher finance to lower carbon. Named the most innovative investment bank for climate change and sustainability by the banker. That's the power of global connections. Bank of America North America. Member FDIC. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, we have Morgan Stanley's global equity strategist, Rushir Sharma. He is also the head of emerging markets for Morgan Stanley, uh, a a person who may not be well known to the investing public, but is very influential on Wall Street, frequently writes for for outlets like the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, uh, the FT, describing what's happening uh, in the world and in the global economy. Uh, His most recent book is called The Rise and Fall of Nations. His previous book, was on breakout nations. And if you are at all uh, interested in investing overseas, he has some very, very specific ideas about what you should and shouldn't do. And I don't mean buy Brazil, sell Russia, or anything like that. It's really his process that's so good. He, The most recent book, The Rise and Fall of Nations, it's a 10-point treatise on these are the 10 steps you should make before reaching a decision about buying or selling any particular region in the world. Uh, He's very rigorous and analytical, and his thought process is different than from from what all too many people, I think, uh, do when they approach emerging markets. I found it to be a fascinating conversation, and I think you will as well. With no further ado, my conversation with Rushir Sharma. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Rushir Sharma. He is Morgan Stanley's chief global strategist and head of emerging markets. He has quite the fascinating background. Uh, He manages about $20 billion with a team of 25 people. Uh, He is a frequent contributor to the Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, Foreign Affairs. Raised in Delhi, the son of a military officer, and had written for India's largest financial daily, uh, the Economic Times, since the age of 17. Rushir is also the author of several books, including Breakout Nations, a, a 2012 bestseller, and more recently... The Rise and Fall of Nations, a New York Times bestseller that just came out this year. Rushir Sharma, welcome to Bloomberg. Great to be here, Barry. Thanks. So I have so much stuff to go over with you. I'm, I'm fascinated by your background and, and your travel history. How did you develop a love for international travel? Yeah, you know, like I've had a nomadic existence. I, um, I was born in the south of India. And then because my father, as you mentioned at the outset, was in the uh, services, he was a naval officer and also spent some time uh, as a diplomat in overseas locations like Singapore. So that's why I had a nomadic existence traveling from one place to another. And I think that may have somewhere seeded this interest in global affairs at a young age. So before you started at Morgan Stanley in 1996, how many countries have you lived in or at least visited prior? I had lived in for a large part of my life in India and then also in Singapore. Mm-hmm. And although I had visited other places, I, um, you know, like uh, apart from Europe and been to London, etc. But I'd say that it was my education in Singapore. I went to a school there called the United World College. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
at a very young age, they sort of paid a lot of attention because it was an international school. They paid a lot of attention to sort of uh, showing you about exactly and... like about global affairs, and and it's also like these are things which are so hard to know when or uh, what or why. But at a someone like at a very young age, I was always very interested in current affairs, whether mm-hmm. it was Indian current affairs or global current affairs, and I think that that's what really sort of. Uh, set me in motion here. So so let's talk about your job at Morgan Stanley. You're you're their global chief strategist as well as head of emerging markets. What do those jobs entail? Well, I'm basically like an investor. So on the investment management side, I spend uh, I've always been on the investing side. Mm-hmm. And uh so um I run money uh or Manage money, so to speak. Is that is that number uh, ballpark twenty billion dollars? Yes, that's right. Just over twenty billion dollars in sort of assets under management, mm-hmm. and uh, also sort of think about global macro issues for the firm. And so that's what sort of gives me my other title as being the chief global strategist. So how much of that money is dedicated to EM, and how much of it is? You know, well, the money I directly manage is mostly dedicated to EM. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I um, we also have some uh, some global money uh, which we manage. But mostly it is EM money that I manage. But uh, in terms of the chief global strategist footprint really involves thinking a lot about the major global issues and uh, interacting with clients and telling them about that. So there's no substitute for, for boots on the ground and seeing countries. Absolutely, yes. How often are you on the road? How many countries do you go to a year? And what parts of the world have you been to recently? Yeah, I try and average, I'd say about um, one country a month, which is to you know, basically pick a country and spend nearly a week there or at least a few days there. If mm-hmm. it's a small country, then maybe just go to the region. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's what I've done for the last 20 years. Really? Yeah, because I find that there are two things here, you know, which are sort of very important out here. One is the fact that when you're on the ground, it focuses your mind like never before. Like sure. I can sit in my office and I can read all I want about Philippines. Not the same. And I just will not get that involved in, you know, with the Philippines until I go to the Philippines. And mm-hmm. then when you're there, you're basically sort of you know covering it uh, top down to bottom up in terms of you're meeting the policymakers, meeting government people, central bank people, you're meeting CEOs of companies, and then also meeting investors and, you know, sort of other players in the marketplace. So I find that really fascinating, that one, that it it focuses your mind when you're on the ground, and two, that you end up always picking up little details about that country, which you wouldn't have right. if uh, you were just, just sitting in office. Just doesn't come across in a dry research report. That's right. I'm, I'm doing the math in my head, one country a month for <laughs> 20 years. How many countries have you been yeah, all but of told course, to? I, I, I assume to, there are a few repeats. Exactly. You know, like, there are, are, are there even 240 countries? I don't well, even know. Uh, if, uh, roughly that much. I think right? the UN counts just over 200 countries. Right. So, uh, you know, like I counted the other day. Uh, uh, and I've been to just over 60 countries. That's pretty good. That's pretty, but you know, like that's amazing that I think that I've traveled so much, but I haven't. That I've only been to 60 countries out of whatever 200 odd countries that you can possibly right. go to. Um, having said that, of course, there are a few key countries that I do visit repeatedly, like China, India. Those are the kind of places mm-hmm. where I've been to virtually every year. So uh, this year, when you go overseas and you visit people, what do they want to talk about? Besides the U.S. elections, well, I mean that's really top of mind. I mean, there's never is been, that dominating everything. Yeah, absolutely, there's never been so much interest in U.S. elections or in U.S. politics as has been the case this year. And you know, like yeah, even after the election was over, even now people are still sort of dissecting it in mm-hmm. a way that the you know because I think that that's the that's the big difference that had someone like Hillary won the election, then I think that Spoiler what would have happened alert. was <laughs> that in terms of that. 
I don't think the interest would have been that high. So whether we like uh, Trump or not, the one thing which he's great for, I think, is ratings and keeping the interest very high in U.S. politics. No, no doubt about that. So given their interest in the U.S. election and given what Trump has said about um, trade policies, what sort of reaction have you been hearing since the election from contacts overseas? Well, I think that you know there's a big fear factor just now because I think that in the emerging markets, there's been a huge sort of shift in sentiment, uh, mm -hmm. which is that there was a sense before the election that you know there's a some sort of a recovery is way under underway in emerging markets. Right. But after the election, there's been a dramatic shift in mood because now all of a sudden people are wondering that does this mean that the U.S. is going to turn much more inward, more protectionist? And the one place where sentiment is totally beaten down, in fact, that's my next stop also. I'm going to go, that's my next country I'm going to visit is Mexico. Has to be. Yeah. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Rushir Sharma. He is Morgan Stanley's chief global strategist and a world traveler. Most recently, he is the author of The Rise and Fall of Nations, Forces of Change in the Post-Crisis World. Let's talk a little bit about the four Ds. You write about in the book depopulation, deglobalization, deleveraging, and de-democratization. I bet when you wrote it, you weren't trying to be ironic, but here we are. And and each of these things are now much more intense subjects than they were just a few weeks ago. So let's start with depopulation. First of all, what is depopulation and how does population impact various countries? Yeah, look, you know, in terms of there's been uh, so much hand-wringing over the last few years about why economic growth is so low across the world. And this is not just a US phenomenon, but it's across the world. In fact, there is no region in the world today which is growing at the pace it was before the global financial crisis of 2008. Mm -hmm. And one of the most sort of underappreciated factors for this low economic growth environment is the change in demographics across the world, not just in the Western world as is popularly believed, but also in large parts of the emerging world, China, Korea, Taiwan, Russia. Really? Because yes. the assumption has been... That when you look at the Western world, you know, the Japanese are an aging society with no immigration and a limited number of young people. And China, their one-child rule really has impacted um, yes. their demography. The U.S. seems to be growing faster than Europe. But the assumption is always, well, emerging markets in Africa and South America, they have to be populating wildly. Are you saying no, that's not the case? That's true, but there's been a massive slowdown in the growth of population across the world. And of course, in places such as Germany or even mm -hmm. Russia and all, it's turned negative. The working age population increases. Really? Yes. And in uh, in China, for the first time, its working age population, in fact, fell last year. So these are huge changes which are taking place. But even in the very populous countries, which you talk about in Africa mm -hmm. and in places like India and Pakistan, the slowdown in population growth rate has been quite sharp. Really? So, like, as you know, there are two drivers of economic growth, which is one is the increase in labor force mm -hmm. and two is the increase in productivity. Those are right. the two things which drive economic growth. And when we look back, uh, in history, what we're going to see is this, which is that the period from 1950 till about 2008 was the fastest growing period in the history of economic development, much faster than even the growth rates we saw in the second industrial revolution mm -hmm. in the late 19th century when you had a massive boom in productivity. Right. And the reason for that was that the world's population and therefore the world's labor force never grew at such a rapid pace as was the case between 1950 and 2008 or so. So, so let's unpack that a little bit. Yeah. I'm hearing you saying that there was a huge post-war 
baby boom. We all know that. That was not just the U.S., but global. Yes. Um, you also had a massive uptick in productivity. Yes. At least until, let's call it the late 1990s, where yes. there was an argument to be made that there's still an increase in productivity. We're just measuring it all wrong. Mm-hmm. And then third, we're now at a point where population growth has tailed off, and that's the new normal. That's the reason yeah, that's for the, the economy being as- The single most important reason, as you said, like on- Productivity, uh, there's still a debate where many people think it's being underestimated, mismeasured and stuff. But on the trends and demographics, there can be no debate because those trends are there to be seen. And here's the basic trend, which is that till the middle of the last decade, the world's working age population was growing at a pace of about 2% a year. Mm-hmm. Since then, it's been falling off a cliff. And today, that rate is down to 1% a year. You so think we're going to flatten out or even go negative? No, a, no, well, I don't know about going negative, but the pace is set to slow down further. Because that's we, fascinating because yeah. we've uh, my whole life yes. I've heard these dystopian forecasts that overpopulation, 10 billion, 15 billion, 20 billion, what are we going to do? We may actually reach a stasis and sort of find a population that we top out at 8, 9, 10 billion. And, and yeah, I mean, the world's population is still set to increase further, but the pace has slowed down dramatically. So I think that's the important thing. And that's the very important variable for economic growth. Which what, is that now, let, let me ask you, why is the population slowing? Because I would have assumed, well, wealthy countries tend to have better health care, uh, access to birth control, fewer children. But you're implying this is a global phenomenon. Yeah, but I think that it's also because you've had an increase in female participation in the labor force in mm-hmm. many countries. And so you know, people are having less babies in in general. Mm-hmm. So I think that it's also like a lifestyle issue. It's a right. it's a demographic issue in terms of the mortality rates have dropped everywhere. And so have the fertility rates have dropped even faster. Uh, you know, Fertility rates are yes, dropping faster. Yes, what, yes. What's the driver of that? Well, you know, for example, take India, you know, my homeland, which is that, uh, th- that the fertility rate there used to be about six or so in the 1950s and 1960s. That's down to two and a half wow. because, you know, there are much more sort of sensitive about families, about how many children that they're having, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so that that sort of pace has slowed down dramatically back there. I could talk about population all day. Let's move on to the other Ds. Deglobalization. Yeah. Given the results of the election, let's talk a little bit about trade barriers and how important free trade is to the global economy. Yeah. You know, there are three drivers, I think, of globalization, right? So we think of it mostly in terms of trade. Mm-hmm. But the other two drivers are capital, right? The free movement of capital between borders. And the third is to do with immigration. Trade, capital, and immigration. Right. So these are the three tenets of traditional globalization. Mm -hmm. All these three increased massively in the 1980s and 1990s, right up until the financial crisis of 2008. You got an explosion in all these three. Since 2008, they've all slowed down dramatically. So- Cross-border capital movements much slower than much they were slower, before. Absolutely, I mean, like those have virtually collapsed. And so, we know immigration has certainly like, taken a hit. Exactly, slowed down, and, and trade and trade has slowed down. That you know we are, we've all been used to a world where trade has increased at a rate which is much much faster than global economic growth. And that's not a one-off because I've seen the occasional monthly. Oh, trade is a little less. No, it's this a multi-year is- phenomenon. I'm saying that this has persisted now on a trend basis this decade. And if you look at the policies that the governments are taking. I think that these trends will only intensify. And the election, which you pointed out just now uh, in the US, is basically another trend. Uh, an an anti-trade election exactly. to some degree. Yes. I mean, we'll see what actually if TPP and NAFTA and what the well, I think that, changes I mean, like, you know, are. TPP, et cetera, are dead. I mean, right. I really don't think that those things are and coming NAFTA, back. And NAFTA, are we going to see a change? And is it realistic which, to change NAFTA? It's going to be much point? more difficult. But I think that, you know, 
that is something that we're likely to like to obviously see touched upon. As I said, at this stage, it's very hard to know what all Trump is going to follow through on in which on what he said in the election. But I think the direction is clear, which is in all these three things, I do not see a major pickup taking place anytime soon. And here history is very instructive. In fact, I've looked at this, which is that globalization tends to move in waves, which are mm -hmm. multi-decade waves. We saw a big increase in globalization take place also in the late 19th century, right up until the first decade of the 20th century. And then from 1914 onwards, with the outbreak of the First World War, we got a big decline in globalization, which lasted for many decades. So my sort of bet at this point is that deglobalization is here to stay. This is a the new buzzword and a multi-year trend, not just a, you know like a freak data <laughs> uh, event. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Rushir Sharma. He is Morgan Stanley's chief global strategist and head of emerging markets and manages over $20 billion in assets. He is a frequent contributor to various media outlets and is the author of The Rise and Fall of Nations and Breakout Nations, which was a highly regarded book that came out in 2012. So let's talk about that phrase. What is a breakout nation? Right. At that point in time, when I wrote that book, it was really sort of to bust the myth of the brick countries, which is that there was so much hype about the BRIC nations last decade, right? Thank, thank you for that, because it, it seems like BRIC was created because it was a, an amusing acronym, but really, what is it that ties China and Very Brazil little. together yeah. or but I think India that, Yeah, but I think you have to understand Russia. the sociology as to why it became so popular, which is that last decade, we saw an unprecedented boom in emerging markets. Mm -hmm. Virtually every emerging market did well last decade in economic growth terms, equity market performance, financial terms, every emerging market did well. And then BRIC captured the four largest emerging markets. Right. That's it. So this was a great marketing acronym, but like all marketing creations, it had a... a it overstays its date. usefulness. Exactly. So, right. so, so I think that this, there were a flurry of acronyms which came out even after BRIC, but they've all failed since. And BRIC today appears like such a last decade concept. Right, right. So the book in 2002, 12, which uh, I wrote Breakout Nations, was that, okay, the BRIC era is over. Which are the next countries which are likely to do well across the world? Let's talk about that. What are some of the countries that may not make for a perfect acronym, yeah. but have a lot of growth potential? Yeah. You know, when I wrote that book, at that point in time, I had pointed out in the emerging world to countries such as Philippines, mm -hmm. Indonesia. I had pointed out to some countries in Eastern Europe, such as Poland, Czech, Romania. And then I'd also sort of pointed out to some so-called frontier markets. Now, I, I'm know, glad you brought well. that out. Yeah. Define the difference between emerging and frontier. Yeah, I think the difference between emerging and frontier, at least in the investing world, is that emerging markets are seen to be mainstream countries in which you can like easily invest and get your money like in and out. Frontier tends to be the next category, which are markets which are slightly off the beaten down path. Give us a few examples. Uh, uh, yeah, for example, like in the frontier markets today, you would have countries such as Kazakhstan, or right. you would have Romania, but the largest ones you would have are Nigeria, Vietnam. So, I was going to ask you about Vietnam, a frontier market, not a emerging full, market. Not as yet. It's a classification issue, right. really, which is that the difference is not that much, but it's a classification issue. So how do you define that? When I think of Vietnam, I think of a, uh, a country that is rapidly adopting 
Western technology and, and all variations of capitalism. A lot of outsourcing to Vietnam. They're a competitor to China and they seem to be booming. Yeah, I mean, like Vietnam is a country that I'm optimistic on in my in my latest book. When I apply the 10 rules, Vietnam does come up uh, fairly well. What about Turkey? Turkey is one of those countries Yeah, Turkey is a also... country on which I've changed my mind, which is that Turkey used to be a country that, which in breakout nations I was relatively optimistic on. Right. But I think that for from about 2013, when Erdogan began to lose the plot, right. I think that since then I've been much more skeptical on Turkey and remain skeptical on Turkey today. Because Turkey is a country which is running massive financial imbalances, one of the largest current account deficits of any emerging market. Right. It has not been able to correct that despite the very sharp fall in commodity prices. And then you have the case of Erdogan. I mean, here is a leader who seems to have overstayed his welcome in power. When Erdogan first came to power, he was a reformer. He wanted to take Turkey closer to Europe. Europe. He implemented lots of reforms to try and meet the uh, requirements towards a move to the European Union. But if and you look at how he's governed in the last few years, it's been very different. That his entire focus has been on cementing his hold on power, even if that comes at a major economic cost. So let's talk about something related to that. The, the old line I was familiar with was, geography is destiny. Right. But your variation of it is, look for the geographic sweet spot. Right. So what is the geographic sweet spot and what countries are, are in it? Yeah. So like what I mentioned there is that if you look at the history of economic development, countries, particularly the mid to small countries, have done well when they are in the right trade routes. So if you have you know, some of the world's major trade routes and those countries find themselves in those trade routes, they have done pretty well. So those countries today, Vietnam's a classic case of that. Mm -hmm. You know, like it's there in the trade routes south of China, you know, like China and, and in terms of how like Vietnam's doing. Sri Lanka is another example, like strategically very well located. Then you have in the Middle East, Dubai, you know, which is sort of done well. So just just the fortuitousness of being yes. near a deep water port, near near trade routes, etc. Yes, I think that's something which is a, you know, which is a helpful. Now, again, there are many countries who can completely waste that dividend that they get from being in the right geography, right? So it's but it's a, a huge help to start with yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. Like it's a huge help to start with, especially if you're a small to mid-sized country. And, you know, Singapore, Hong Kong in the past have shown that. Having said that, I... Uh, this is one thing which I think I have to adjust to the new reality that in a deglobalizing world, which we just spoke about, I think in that environment to be able to export your way to prosperity is going to be much more difficult. So I think that the world is now beginning to change on that, that it's no, it's no longer that easy to export your way to prosperity and being in the right geographical sweet spot is still helpful, but not as helpful as it used to be when the world was globalizing. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Rushir Sharma. He is Morgan Stanley's chief global strategist and head of emerging markets. Let's talk a little bit about some of those emerging markets and, and some of the issues that we see going on. I've noticed that people have a tendency to really overgeneralize about emerging markets. Are they all that similar or are there that many dramatic differences from country to country? There are dramatic differences, and over time, those differences show up. But I think that in the financial community, it's very easy to club them together, and especially in a world where passive investing is on the rise, and mm -hmm. uh, you know people just want to sort of, okay, emerging markets are doing well, and they'll just put something in an ETF blindly and, and sort of get on with it. I think that it's become easy to generalize, but yeah, over time, the differences are huge. And the performance of countries is very stark in terms of like the differences mm -hmm. 
over time. Like this decade, Brazil, Russia have performed so poorly. On the other hand, you have countries like Philippines or even like in Indonesia, which have done much better. You have countries like India, which are still sort of growing. China's economic prospects are changing for the worse very quickly. So let's address yeah. a few of those countries. So let, let's look at the two biggest one you mentioned, Russia and China. I've been hearing about Chinese debt now for a decade. Jim Chanos right. famously started pounding the table five years ago about this. But really, this now more than ever, we're seeing China appearing to really have taken on a whole lot of debt. How much trouble is China in and can they grow their way out of it? Yeah, because I've dedicated an entire chapter in my book to the issue of debt. I call it the kiss of debt. Mm -hmm. That in the 10 rules that I look at to figure out if a country is going to do well or not do well in the foreseeable future, the one in which I have the maximum confidence in is the kiss of debt rule. Why? Because we did a lot of research on this. That's my team and I. And what I found out here was that if a country's debt increases very sharply over a short time horizon, that country always gets into trouble. It's not got to do with the level of debt. It's got to do with the pace of increase. If you take on too much debt over a very short time horizon, you're bound to make bad investments. There are bound to be bad loans, a lot of malinvestment in the economy, and that's going to come back to haunt that economy. And China, the debt binge that China has been on this decade is unprecedented. Uh, so the question about that, and I don't know if you can answer this, they seem to be making so much money. They built so many factories. They were attracting so much economic activity. Why would they have to take on all that debt? Yeah, that's my point, which is that it's that ambition to grow at a rate which is no Not longer feasible or right. no longer sustainable. So till 2008, until the global financial crisis, China's debt situation was relatively stable. So, mm -hmm. you know, China's debt was increasing, but increasing in line with the, you know, with the underlying economic growth rate. So it was relatively stable. Right. After the global financial crisis. And, and when things started to slow down Across the world. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, like uh, you got a major slowdown. Their exports got very badly hit. They still wanted to grow at a rate which they thought was right for them. And this is one of the problems that you have in a sort of that kind of a economic system, which they come up with a growth rate and then just want to achieve that no matter what. Regardless of what the reality on, on the yeah, because, global you know, growth picture looks absolutely. like. Absolutely. So I think that that's what China has been doing, which is that it wants to keep growing at a target it sets, which is, you know, six to seven percent. That target is uh, set with only one objective, which is in 2010, they decided we have to double our economic size by the end of the decade. And, right. and so the math that they did was that we need a growth of eight percent first then seven, then six to get there. And so they are following that path, but they're taking on debt like never before. There's one simple statistic about China which should worry us. At the peak of the U.S. housing bubble in 2007, it was taking $3 of debt to create a dollar of GDP growth in the United States. Today in China, it's taking $4 of debt to create a wow. dollar of GDP growth in that country. That's been the explosion in debt in China this decade. You referenced Russia before also. I've always thought of, of Russia as a very challenging place to invest. Corruption, rule of law, just... You know, and this is before Putin, and now it's even more challenging. Is Russia an investable nation? Well, I think there are pockets of investment out there, but I think as far as Russia is concerned, it's really gone what I call X growth, which is that X growth. Yeah, the, which is that the best you can hope out of Russia for economic growth rates now is one or two percent. Mm -hmm. You know, this is not an emerging market type growth rate that you would no. uh, think. 
Its demographics are terribly against it. They're losing educated population yes. and total population. Yes. And, and then what's happening also is the fact that the investment environment in Russia is very difficult. The only thing that Putin has done, to his credit, is made the best of a bad situation. He's trying his best to make sure that the country doesn't go bankrupt at these low oil prices. So he's adopted austerity. He's allowed the central bank to devalue the currency and to raise interest rates, to keep inflation under control. He's really doing that. So I think that his game is very clear, which is that keep the economy from uh, imploding, particularly on metrics that really hurt the people, which is inflation. And he focuses much more on invoking nationalism to remain popular. Sure. But the economy is ex-growth. That, I mean, like it's now flat. It's, yeah, uh, flat at best, you know, one to two percent type economic growth rate from Russia for the foreseeable future. We're speaking with Morgan Stanley's Rushir Sharma about emerging markets. He's the author of The Rise and Fall of Nations. Let's get a little macro in our conversation about EM. When I look at bourses around the world, are emerging market bourses more susceptible to boom and bust cycles than developed nations? Or is it a similar pattern that they follow relative to what the US and Japan and, and Europe experiences? Yeah, I think that again, um, we have to sort of classify which emerging market we're talking about. Like the Chinese stock market, the domestic stock market is like- uh, it's, had, it's had a wild run for it, the yeah, past I, couple of years. I mean, a wild run, which is unprecedented, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, as one sort of wise person put it, that it's like a casino without rules, right? So, what what about yeah. the sensei? What about uh, indexes in in and and markets in India? Yeah, but I'm saying that uh, I think that India has a healthier stock market. I mean, it's a deeper capital market, so I think that India is better. Deeper capital market than China. Well, in terms of the domestic market, yeah. In terms That's of, fascinating. Yeah, in terms of by by deeper, I mean, what I mean is more well-regulated compared right. to what we have in China and less susceptible to the booms and busts of the Chinese stock market. Chi I mean, the China stock market is very deep in terms of the amount of liquidity and turnover. That right. is huge in China. But it seems like it's a housewife's day trading phenomena there. Yeah, I mean, there are parts of it, you know, which are that too. So that's the problem in the, in the, like in the Chinese stock market. The Chinese stock market has never reflected economic growth in China. There's no connection between economic growth and the Chinese stock market's performance for the last 20, 30 years. Now, some people would argue that it's hard to draw a straight line between U.S. economic growth and, and the stock market. They don't always sync up exactly. Uh, they're over long periods of time. A long expansion tends to lead to a long bull market. Yes. But we have a tendency to sort of occasionally go out. Just yeah. look at the gains of the past seven years of the market relative to the no, modest gains that's, in the economy. That's true. But, the, you know, but at least like you get the Directionally, direction. they're similar. Yeah, you know, I mean, you know, directionally, you get some similarity on Overlaid on this, when you get such easy monetary policy, you end right. up getting, you know, like all sure. these financial excesses. But in China's case, you can't it's draw any random. line. It's like totally random. So I'm saying uh, that, and that's not true for most countries. If you draw a line over time, over how the stock market has done some and how the overall economy has done, there is a relationship. Let's talk about South America, where here in the United States, we really don't pay a whole lot of attention to as investors. There's been some social turmoil. There's been some political turmoil in South America. What do you see going on there and, and what's of interest to you? Well, I think that Latin America is one place which is breaking for the better on the political front, right? That at a time when populism is on the rise in so many parts of the Western world, Latin America is seeing something very interesting which is that you're seeing the return of economic orthodoxy in Latin America. Uh-huh. And what name, do I mean Name by some that? countries. Yeah. For example, you take the classic case of Brazil. Right. That in Brazil's case, that, that country had really sort of uh, 
gone from being the star of the emerging world last decade to being the poster child of what all is wrong with the entire emerging world. Uh, Just a, they're yeah. a mess these days. Complete mess. But having said that, in the post-Dilma world, after she was impeached, mm -hmm. and you have a new administration out there, the kind of reforms that are taking place are quite encouraging. Now, it's a terrible situation still, but at the margin... Starting to turn around. Yeah, they're starting to turn around. And what they have done is quite remarkable in terms of starting the cleanup process after the big mess which was left behind by the previous government. You, you talk about reforms. You discuss why reforms are so important to emerging market economies. Uh, go into a little detail about that. You mentioned it in the book. I know you've written about it in the past. Right. Why is economic reform so significant to emerging market countries? Well, I think that, you know, re reform is significant for all countries, but in mm -hmm. emerging markets, there's so much to be done because there's so much of the economy which is functioning in an inefficient way in these countries, and therefore their per capita income tends to be much lower, that there's so much which can be done to clean that up and for those countries to move to a much higher per capita income plane. But I mean, here's So the it's problem. just a function of you get, that, get our act together, the population makes more, has a higher income per person, and everybody is yeah, lives but happily saying, yeah, ever but the, after. But the reforms have to be sort of very country-specific in terms of what's required, right? Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, Give us a case, few examples. Yeah, like in the case of India today, it's the banking system, which is a complete mess. So uh -huh. you, need, like, you need a cleanup of the banking system, much more sort of private sector involvement in it, because today the banking system is so dominated by public sector or government-owned banks. So that's like a huh. area of reform as far as... Uh, they need a little Thatcherism there and spin it out publicly. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, you can argue that in terms of it. Now, in some other countries, the reform requirement may be something very different in terms of what needs to be done. Like in the case of Indonesia, like there was a huge amount of a black economy, unaccounted economy, right. how to bring that back into the mainstream. Fold. Isn't that a common problem in, in a lot of yes, um, that's a, countries? Yeah, that's a common problem, but more so in some than the others. Mm -hmm. Right now. In the, so I think that in terms of reforms is a catch all term. But for each country, we have to be sort of careful about what exactly we mean by reform and what exactly can be done politically. Because I'm not interested in sort of rattling off that XYZ country needs to do ABC. I'm more interested in what is the political environment like in a country and what sort of reforms are likely to be passed and what that means for that country's economic growth rate going forward. We've been speaking with Rushir Sharma. He is Morgan Stanley's head of global equities and the author, most recently, of The Rise and Fall of Nations. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and stick around for our podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing all things emerging market. You can read my daily column on BloombergView.com or follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. We love your emails and comments. Be sure to write to us at mibpodcast at Bloomberg.net. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Seeing what others have seen, but uncovering what others may not global research that helps you harness disruption. Voted top global research firm five years running. Merrill Lynch, Pierce Fenner & Smith Incorporated. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, Rushir, thank you so much for doing this and being so generous with your time. I, I find EM to be a, a fascinating area and it's, it's a pleasure to speak to an expert in it. Great to be here, Barry. Thanks for having me. So we missed a bunch of questions um, during the broadcast portion and I there's a few I really want to jump into, and you said a few things that I took some notes and, and wanted to follow up on. Um, you referenced ETFs and kind of just blindly buying as opposed to focusing on countries. I remember if you went back 10 or 20 years, 
and you wanted to invest in emerging markets, it was really hard to do so. There were a handful of managers who specialized in it. You had a lot of currency risk. Uh, the funds to do it was pretty uh, expensive. It wasn't cheap. And, of course, everybody suffers from the home country bias. They're wildly overexposed to where they live and underexposed to the rest of the world. But what is it about um, uh, the recent changes in emerging markets that have allowed more and more people access to fast, easy, inexpensive ways to invest in the space? No, I think that in terms of that, this is a broad trend that we're seeing across the world. Everywhere. Which is exactly, which is, you know, a move towards passive, away from active kind of investing. Mm -hmm. And my point is that in the emerging world, especially, and I can argue that that's wrong and uh, even in the developed world, but in the emerging world in particular, that's a wrong approach just because the differences are so sharp. Right. And, the, and the execution is also much more difficult, you know, like just to buy stuff which is passive. Right. And then uh, over time, emerging market fund managers do tend to outperform more than their developed market peers. So I think that... Now, why is that? Is that the faster growth rate? Is that the... Well, because I think there are uh, possibly more inefficiencies that right. you can exploit, the differences, the inefficiencies, that you can exploit those much more in the emerging world. Right. So I think that over time, there is benefit towards uh, uh, investing actively in the emerging world. So, so let's talk about an active investment in EM. If you look at the universe of possible frontier market and emerging market investments, what do you think are the most attractive countries today? And conversely, what are the least attractive countries? Yeah, I think that if you, I mean, I, uh, I think that it's easy to start with least attractive. I still find that China is the biggest risk in the emerging really? world. Really? Yeah, because, wow. of, because of the kiss of debt that we spoke about earlier. Because well, there's a comeuppance coming and yeah, it just hasn't hit yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, and even if it doesn't hit in a big crisis blow, it's like an insidious sort of, uh, trend, which is that it sort of eats away slowly at at the growth rate over time. So I think China's uh, so going to keep so slowing let me, down. Let, yeah. let me jump in here and and digress to a related question. If China has a debt problem and, and a huge economic slowdown caused by that, what does that mean for the rest of the world? I, I really look at China as more of a reflection of how the the industrialized or, or uh, Western advanced economies are doing because they're the manufacturing department yeah, but, for the rest of the world. Yeah, but having said that, I think that there is a sort of big difference here, which is that debt levels in the rest of the world have stopped going up much, right? So, and if anything, they've begun to deleverage. And in some that was one of the, of the questions we didn't, one of the D's we didn't get to. Yeah, exactly. exactly. So some countries are deleveraging, including you know countries such as Brazil and and Russia, possibly. And even in, in the United States, the government debt's going up. On the private sector side, the debt levels have at least stabilized. They're not going up anymore, particularly on the household and the financial side. But in China's case, debt has been exploding mm -hmm. like never before, uh, like almost no country before it. So I think that in really? China's what, case— What's their total amount of debt and what's their yeah, debt-to-GDP ratio? I think it depends like. how you calculate it, but somewhere between 250 to 300% as a share of the GDP really? is China's debt today. Yes. That's huge. That's huge. And Compared to the United States, we're barely It's 100%. like similar. It's No, I mean, it's. Uh, I'm talking about total debt. I'm talking about not Oh, just so private and private, government. Exactly. So the U.S. debt levels are almost similar to China, but the difference is, uh, is twofold here. One, that the increase in China's debt has been much sharper than anything that the United States has right. seen. And two, that typically the richer you are, the more debt you can afford because you have that much wealth to offset it. Right. But and in China's case, the debt levels are as high as the United States today as a share of its economy, even though chi the Chinese 
per capita income, its wealth, is a fraction of that of the United States. Huh, that's so, fascinating. Yeah, so I think that the Chinese debt situation is very troubling to me. What what other countries do you think are potentially problematic from an investor's perspective? Well, I, uh, I'm still concerned about Turkey because I think that in Turkey, mm-hmm. the interest rates uh, in the U.S. as they go up, they're very dependent on foreign capital. So Turkey is still some a country that I'm I'm concerned about. I think that South Africa, Africa, I think the African growth story in many parts is over. Really? Uh, yeah, you know, something that we were all sort of looking to Africa rising. Now there are still pockets in Africa. So I wouldn't generalize right. about the entire continent, but many parts of Africa from Nigeria to South Africa face a rather bleak growth future. Really? Uh, so I think that, Very problematic, the whole, the yeah, whole continent. Yes. I, I think that, the, that in a deglobalizing world, countries such as Korea, Taiwan, even Hong Kong, Singapore, all these countries which relied much more on external demand to grow. Mm-hmm. I think that these countries are, face a much bleaker future than they did in the past. So that's the bleak side, the dark side of the of the world. On the positive side, I think that, you know, in my book, of course, I talk about both developed and emerging countries, my new book. Mm-hmm. I think that in the emerging world, I think the Indian subcontinent looks okay. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the growth prospects look decent there. Eastern Europe, I think, has cleaned up its act a lot. Poland, Czech, Romania, those kind of countries. I think Latin America, as I mentioned, because of the politics, is getting better whether it's Brazil, but more specifically Argentina, Peru, these kind of countries, the economic prospects are improving. And then in the developed world too, countries like United States, Germany, to me, they look fine. Now, you know, like we all here in the United States moan about all the problems that we have and how economic growth has been so low and this is the weakest economic recovery in post-war history, all true. But on a relative basis, what we sort of have to account for is that the rest of the world faces even greater problems. So whenever there's any problem in the world, people are still fleeing to the US dollar, right? So because this is still the uh, reserve currency of the world, there's no other currency out there out to challenge the US right. dollar. Not, certainly not the yen, not the euro. It, yeah, it exactly. And the, even the yuan. The yuan, that's all, not going to happen. I mean, it's facing all sorts of problems mm-hmm. just now, and its financial sector is quite brittle. So this is not a uh, currency that's about to take over the world as the next reserve currency. Mm-hmm. So I'd say that, and Germany is still doing very well, uh, despite all the sort of problems in Europe, uh, you know, like it seems to me that a lot of the core European countries are becoming more uh, sort of uh, integrated rather than turning skeptical uh, um, after the uh, referendum in places such as UK. Mm -hmm. So I'd say there are enough bright spots in the world, but what we have to do, and this is a very important concept that I introduce in the book, is to lower the baseline for economic success. Which is to in other words to stop looking for four or five percent growth absolutely. and two and a half percent growth is fine. Yeah, and I'm saying that two, uh, like for the developed world, I'd say even anything north of one and a half two percent is fine mm-hmm. because we we have an anchoring bias as we call it, which is that we look at what we were growing at in the last twenty thirty years and, and look that's at not that going to happen say, again anytime the, no, soon. Exactly, but and why? Right, as I point out, that it's because of demographics have changed. You just can't deliver those economic growth rates anymore. The debt super cycle has ended in most countries. The massive increase in global debt we saw between 1980 to 2008 uh, has come to a stall, barring maybe in North China, but and they're facing problems because of that. But generally, it's come to a stall. And then you have an era of deglobalization, which is that nations are turning more inward. Mm -hmm. So the productivity boost from globalization is behind us now. Uh, So I think that these are reasons why we should not expect to grow. And that's fits in with long-term history to understand that the period between 1950 and 2008 was a very exceptional period. And that period is not coming back anytime soon. And once we accept that and lower the baseline for economic success, as you say, that in the developed world, bring it down to one and a half, two percent 
in the emerging world bring it down you know from whatever uh, 5% plus for many poor countries uh, to bring that all down so lower your growth expectations everywhere the uh, of course the poorer you are the faster your growth rate can potentially be because mm-hmm. from a lower base but lower your growth expectations everywhere and then that's the new math for economic success and you'll be able to identify winners more easily so when you look around the world let let's talk a little bit about valuation where are there um the countries that you think have the upside and prices don't quite reflect it yet where where are is there value out there and and what's pricey yeah i think that in terms of the factors uh that gets a bit more tricky because i think that clearly the us market is much pricier today so mm-hmm. even though the economic prospects look okay because of the fact that you've had such a massive increase in asset prices here due to the fed's easy money policies that here assets look very pricey to me mm-hmm. in the united states i think internationally the prices look somewhat better in europe in particular cheaper more attractive yeah, yeah europe in particular looks more attractive and i'd say some parts of the emerging world too look much more attractive so so how do you balance well europe looks cheaper and emerging markets look cheaper but Europe is a mess and it doesn't look like they're getting their act together anytime soon. But there are parts of Europe which are like I like so, I spoke about Germany, I mm-hmm. spoke about you know some countries in is northern Germany Europe. Is Germany cheap cuz when well, you look at 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 the southern countries that have had their problems, problems yeah. they look dirt cheap. It looks like everybody's afraid to put any money yeah, there. Yeah, that's true, but I think that it's so I'm um, I agree, but I'm saying the cheapness cannot be the only criteria for sure. investing. You know, cheapness is uh, it's got to be cheapness thing. and growth potential as exactly. well. Exactly. So I think that, and you know, from a country perspective, I find that if you get the growth rates correct, mm-hmm. then you're able to sort of do well in those countries. Valuations take care of themselves. Exactly. So I'd say that. So I wouldn't get too hung up on valuations, but generally, because of the massive asset price inflation we've seen in the world over the last few years, led by the United States and the easy policies of the Fed. cheap today is really a hard thing to find in the world. So so we mentioned during the broadcast portion the first two Ds, depopulation and deglobalization. Let's talk a little bit about the other two and and you just referenced deleveraging. So yeah. what what is this the impact of deleveraging on the global economy? Well, I think it makes it more stable over time but also the fact that it sort of puts a downward pressure on economic growth, which is that between 1980 to 2008 we got a massive increase in global debt as a share of the economy and that that made the economy boom exactly like eventually uh you had a bust also at the end of sure. it so i think it's very difficult now to get those kind of massive increases in in global debt because that also was a one off because global inflation was falling and global interest rates declined a lot in that period and i think that those trends are bottoming out now so i don't see debt levels going up across the world much in the next few years And then we have the uh, entire prospect, the the fourth D I speak about, which is democratization. Well, before yeah. we get to the fourth D, I have to ask you. So, Reinhardt and Rogoff did their 800 years of financial folly, and their perspective is following a financial crisis, because of deleveraging, you have a tendency to get this very Low. subpar yeah. growth rate for a decade or so, and then things begin to revert back to normal. Uh, Are you in the Reinhardt and Rogoff camp, or do you think they're? No, I think that you know the, uh, their analysis is is like not that valid anymore because now we are in the eighth year after mm. the global financial crisis, and I think that the reason why the global economy is weak today has to do a lot with the fact that the demographics have changed, as I mentioned. Mm-hmm. But um, so I don't think that uh, uh, that what happened in two thousand eight in terms of debt is that relevant today. But what is relevant is that the 
levels of debt aren't going up that much anymore to turbocharge growth the way the, the growth was turbocharged between 1980 and 2008. So there's a subtle difference here, but it's yeah. a secular change. It's yeah. a, that's not it's not that subtle. That's a major change. If yeah. you're not expanding the debt and contracting it, obviously there's a big impact to that. So now let's go to the fourth D, the de-democratization. Um, we had the Brexit vote. We had the Trump uh, victory. What is de-democratization? Well, I think that, you know, um, for much of uh, recent history, we saw an increase in the number of democracies in the world, right? So we saw this in the 1980s, 1990s, that the number of democracies in the world were expanding. But now what we're seeing is that that is no longer the case. In fact, the number of authoritarian regimes is increasing in the world today, with even some countries which were on the path to democracy, like Russia and right. Turkey, etc., turning much more authoritarian now. So that's what I mean by de-democratization. And what does that mean for the global economy? What it means is much more volatility. Because what mm -hmm. I find in our authoritarian regimes is that uh, the policy becomes much more unpredictable. So policy is good. You can get very good economic growth rates. Right. But if policy turns bad, there are no checks and balances in place. And you can get very bad outcomes as well. So much more volatility in global economic growth due to de-democratization. -de That's what I think uh, is going on. That the world is turning less democratic after a massive increase in democracy in the 1980s, 1990s, and much of last decade. And an increase in authoritarian figures across the world, from Putin to Erdogan, hmm. uh, on the rise. So, so how do you, when when you're looking at different countries and you're looking at different regions of the world, how do you model geopolitical risk? It's very difficult to model, but just to keep that in mind, which is the fact that, you know, for example, people speak to me about that. What if something happens in the South China Sea with China, you know, turning much more aggressive, and, or mm. Japan? That's the kind of stuff which is extremely difficult to model, right? But you can keep... Impossible. Keep, impossible. But at least keep in mind that the potential for conflict is going up across the world just today, uh, uh, now. Mm -hmm. Because the United States is, is in retreat, mm -hmm. right? Which pr provided this big security umbrella for many countries. And defense spending is going up. So one of the big trends, I think, which we're seeing in the marketplace and something which I believe in is that defense spending uh, is bound to go up. The peace dividend is over. Like we mm -hmm. had this peace dividend where you had one country which was sort of, you know, benefiting a, 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 or rather providing a benefit to many countries uh, as, as the lone superpower. I think those days are done now. So, so now let's talk about that. The United States provides, um, we, we have treaties with Japan. We have treaties with NATO. We pr work with South Korea to protect against North Korea. We work with Japan against the rest of Asia all along um, Western Europe, we promised to provide a bulwark against Russia and, and what used to be communist Eastern Europe. Are you suggesting that that's going to go away and the United States are going to pull it their— seems so. It seems so. I mean, you know, that's what the Trump presidency is partly about. Now, again, we don't know the details of the Trump presidency. We don't know, mm -hmm. what, you know like how exactly he's going to govern, but it seems that's the trend. And some countries are already acting uh, as if that's the trend. Really? Yeah, because— Defense spending in many parts of the world is going up, if you look at it now, right? In, in, uh, whether it's a Saudi where, where Where do you see defense spending going? Well, up? I think that you, like you see it in parts of Asia, parts of uh, Middle East. Mm -hmm. Like you see defense spending is now is not going up over the last uh, few years. That's so, interesting because the, the number of conflicts has been going down steadily for yeah. decades. The, yes. I wonder if that's going to... Do you see that changing? Is, are yes, we going to see more so. conflicts? I mean, yeah, because I think that if you, again... Look back at history and you look at what 
deglobalization brings it when nations tra- uh, tend to trade less with each other the potential for conflict does go up sure. as nations turn more inward so i do feel that now this is stuff which is very hard to model but it's a risk worth keeping in mind that that's the trend so let what do you think is the next under the radar country to to sort of burst out to become a breakout nation well i'd say <laughs> you know like in terms of in today's era it's much more difficult but mm-hmm. if you ask me like you know one question that a lot of people ask me and it's somewhat related to yours that which region do i think which emerging region do i think mm-hmm. could graduate to becoming a developed region okay. because that's a very high hard transition to make sure. right because today they're about what was the last country that actually made that transition well you can argue that something like greece did it for a while then fell back right. you can right. argue uh countries like israel have have done that countries like korea taiwan are on the border uh, uh those last that. three certainly are are yes. are fairly credible examples exactly so i think that those are if you ask me the next batch i would say it's possibly the eastern european countries really yeah because poland, i feel romania poland, czech is also romania is much further behind mm-hmm. but you know slovakia so so i think that these are the countries which have the best potential for making it to the next level so why um, what what makes those countries so special and and closer to being a developed country than than their peers and neighbors yeah i think that one is in terms of that like the kind of economic policies they follow which is that much more investment friendly and because they're close to europe on how to get integrated with europe so they have an aspiration to catch up with mm-hmm. uh europe so in terms of you know the a convergence aspiration and also the fact that i find that they're focused uh, a lot on getting their institutions correct which mm-hmm. is that you know of, of very important yeah of getting their same sort of metrics like central bank independence uh of of having very strict inflation targets of not doing uh too much uh uh excessive government spending uh mm-hmm. uh keeping the deficits under control so this basic economic orthodoxy that these countries are following and not doing all the bad things also which is that they they've kept the currencies to be fairly competitive not joined the euro fully so they're sort of in that sweet spot which is that they're not part of the euro currency area but they're part of the eu area so they benefit from the trade linkages uh-huh. but don't get locked into having a currency that becomes uncompetitive and leads to all the problems that we saw in southern europe by adopting a common currency uh, you know we have a friend who is an art director at pepsi and and does a lot of their their design for various soda cans and and packaging and and I was looking at some of her portfolios and I'm like oh this is really interesting and she goes this this and this Slovakia this this and this Eastern Europe and I went, what do you mean oh they have great designers and computer people Absolutely. and they work for a tenth of what Americans do that, and yeah. so that, that's a booming booming industry there yeah so very competitive in terms of the exchange rate and their workforce uh, mm-hmm. yeah the labor costs are relatively low so i think that these are all uh good factors for these countries quite quite fascinating uh my last question before i get to my standard questions you reference in i think it was the earlier book the the role of billionaires in a country so what do the number of billionaires mean to a country that's developing well it's then my current book you know one of my rules or the 10 rules i speak about in my current so, book so so let's let's go over those 10 rules then because yeah. i wanted to get to that and uh, i'll i'll hopefully we won't run too late but quickly let let let's review the 10 rules right so my first rule has to do with demographics that people matter 
which we talked about, we in, about in a great deal. The second rule is the circle of life, that how, how politics matters, that mm -hmm. countries which elect new leaders and uh, typically have their back to the wall are the, uh, the best sort of conditions for economic reforms to take place in those countries. Mm -hmm. My third rule has to do with the involvement of the state, which is that typically if you have a very large intrusive state that chokes economic growth. So you Problematic. Need the, yeah, so like you need the state to be sort of efficient and right-sized. Mm -hmm. uh, then I speak about the good and bad billionaires, the fourth rule. And this is a new introduction for me because a decade ago, I would not have had this rule. Why have I introduced this rule? Because income inequality has become such a big factor across the world. That's a question I didn't get to, and I'm glad you're bringing it yeah, up. So now. in terms of income inequality is a factor, and we know that if a country becomes too unequal, that leads to problems for economic growth in that country. Mm -hmm. So the good and bad billionaires is a very live way of uh, gauging whether inequality in a country has become too much of a factor and possibly goes against that country's cultural wealth creation. So you look at the number of good and bad billionaires. If you have too many billionaires in a country, mm. or you have, if you have too many billionaires coming from industries perceived as being corrupt, which is right. you know, real estate, mining, oil and gas, right. or if you have too many billionaires who simply inherit their wealth rather than make it on their own, mm -hmm. those are conditions which typically lead the population of a country to be against the process of wealth creation. Very The flip side, and you know, this is where the United States is still okay, if you have lots of billionaires coming from innovative industries, technology, technology manufacturing, pharmaceuticals, those people are respected a finance, lot. Finance, is finance included yeah. in that? Well, finance, I think, is a borderline Little case, but I'd say that. <laughs> today, I'm right? not surprised. Yeah, if you have too many billionaires coming from finance, I don't think that's a good not, thing for a country. Great. And uh, if a lot of the wealth is merely inherited, like tends to be the case in places like Korea and other places, that's mm -hmm. also not good for a country. But the place where the United States looks a bit weak is that the number of billionaires as a share of the economy is very, very large out here. Right. So, but, so but, you end up with a lot of income inequality. Exactly. And, and but you have to take all these three things together. So that's the first five. Give, give me the back five. Right. So in terms of then I talk about geography, mm -hmm. right? In terms of that. The sweet spot the, yeah, yeah, in trade sweet routes. The spot that we spoke about. Then I speak about uh, Factories investment. first. Yeah. That, that typically countries which are strong in manufacturing and investment do... Do much better than countries which are strong in commodities and consumption. We, we certainly have seen that all around the world yeah. the past 20 years. Yes, uh, you know, like we've seen that these commodity oriented economies boom and bust very frequently. People have been calling it the curse of oil, Middle yes. East. It's or the curse been... of commodities. Right. Uh, so we have seen that over time, countries which tend to focus more on manufacturing exports do much better than countries which export commodities. Mm -hmm. Then I speak about uh, currency, that your exchange rate needs to be very competitive. Uh, to be able to grow, that if you have a very overvalued currency and uh, and you have like, uh, that's not a good thing. Then I speak about inflation, on how low inflation is the bedrock for financial stability. But we also need to sort of focus much more on asset price inflation as well. Looking at just consumer price inflation is not enough. Right. We need to broaden the scope that, you know, if you get housing booms, financed by debt, that's a real problem. My favorite tool, as I said, is the kiss of debt because the academic work that I've done on it has the maximum backing and very powerful. Mm -hmm. And the last rule is, is, is maybe a bit amusing, but really important, is the contrarian rule, which is that if a country begins to appear on the cover stories of a magazine too often uh, in a positive way, that is usually not good for that country because it tells you that that trend is maturing and that and the leaders of the other country are getting too complacent. You, so, you call it the hype watch. The hype watch because, um, as I said, I began my career as a writer and a term I often heard about was the curse of the cover story. No doubt about right? it. Right, which is that something that makes it to the cover of a mag of a popular magazine, that trend tends to come to an end is what journalists speak about. But 
I've done work here to back that up. And what my work very briefly shows is that if a country makes it to the cover of Time magazine mm-hmm. in a positive way, then two-thirds of that time that country does poorly in the next five years. On the other hand, if a country makes it to the cover of Time magazine in a negative way, then two-thirds of that time that or That's more a than half signal. the time that country does well in the next five years. Because as it, it goes back to my original rule of the circle of life that countries typically reform only when they have their back to the wall and countries get complacent once they are already booming. And magazine editors feel emboldened to put a country on the cover in a positive way once a boom is apparent. The the old joke is once uh, it makes it to the editorial staff of Time magazine, who's left to come in and buy? That That's the end of... Uh, that's the end of the run. It, yes. So those 10 are fascinating. In in the last uh, 10, 12 minutes I have you, let, let's go through um, my standard questions uh, to learn a little more about you if we can. Sure. Um, let's talk about some of your you, – we discussed your background. Let's talk about your early mentors. Who who was influential in, in helping your career along? Well, I think that, you know, the, I mean, like in terms of like a combination of uh, – people out there uh the uh firm that i uh that i joined at at morgan stanley for example 20 years ago was led by a very interesting character called barton biggs oh sure of yeah, course so like uh so like he he really sort of uh uh showed me this combination of investing and writing could be such fun uh so he's definitely someone i think that who was in uh like an inspiration for many people out here mm-hmm. uh but you know from an investment standpoint i'd say that well, that I was very fortunate that when, that the person I first worked with back in Asia was somebody who showed me that you really need a very good temperament for investing. And I think that's something which we all tend to possibly underestimate, temperament for investing. G- which is give like, us some more details on yeah, that. What you do know, you mean by that? Yeah, because I think that so many people, I mean, one of the big problems we have in our industry is people sort of, you know, like too wedded to their screens and too wedded to daily price movements and often chasing their tail and um, often with very little ability to withstand pain in the short term and and being too momentum driven, right? So I think that what one of my first uh, uh, people that I worked with really taught me was that how do you have a good temperament for investing? How can you take the long view and and have the patience to sit through uh, the, uh, the long view? So I think that Temperament for investing is some is very important. Huh, that's interesting. Let's talk about investors who and this keeps buzzing. I'm I keep shutting it off and I can't get it to stop. That's that's what I've been doing here. Um, what investors have influenced your approach to investing? Who's affected the way you think about putting money to work in in emerging markets? Well, as I said, that I learned, you know, that, you know, like the people that I initially worked with, including Barton and some of his colleagues, uh, you mm-hmm. know, like obviously you know, had a big influence on that. Uh, uh, but I also feel that uh, like like some of the macro style of investing, you know, like the people that I, that have, you know, that we all grew up admiring were the likes of the George Soros, Julian Robertsons of the sure. world. And uh, I was fortunate to interact with some of them at, the, at a very early stage of my career. So I'd say that, those type of people who, you know, the the classic big hedge fund investors of the 1990s, uh, like such as these characters, I'd say, you know, were uh, very influential in the way that I think that uh, I've grown up. So you've written two books. You've published everywhere from the Wall Street Journal to the FT to, you know, all around. Let's talk about who you read. What what books have you enjoyed, be them 
be they fiction or nonfiction, market-related or not? Well, I tend to read a lot of biographies uh, mm-hmm. because I really sort of find those fascinating, especially which you know take me back into a different uh, period of history. Give us a few examples. For example, this year I read, uh, you know, like uh, John Meacham's book on George Bush the first, right, which is uh, George H.W. Really? Bush. I found that a very interesting book uh, in terms of, uh, it's a fascinating tale of how someone can win a war and lose an election and sure. sort of, you know, to take us into the mind. And it's such a different era also that you, a, a total, uh, a totally different Republican from a different era compared right. to what we see today. Media is different. Everything yeah. was Everything different. Everything is then. different. So I think that was a, a fascinating book to read. I mean, uh, then I think Charles Moore's bi- biography on Margaret Thatcher, Andrew Roberts' book on Napoleon. These are like some of the biographies that I've really enjoyed reading mm-hmm. in recent in like uh, recent times. Uh, I, that in terms of investing, I think that, I mean, I like books which, you know, like tell me mo- more about uh, investing behaviors. So I think mm-hmm. that, Someone like uh, Nicholas Talib has written some good books on that. Uh, Fooled by randomness, Fooled by black randomness, swan, and fragile, and anti-fragile. It, yeah, like the concept of, of anti-fragile was very strong, even though that book itself didn't do that well. But the concept of anti-fragile, I thought, was was like a very strong concept that if you're able to sort of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like that old sort of notion about which he sort of showed so well that if you're able to sort of, you know. Uh, if something can't break you, it makes you stronger. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that those are the kind of books which I which I like to read uh, over time. But I'd say that the biographies, in particular, is my uh, weakness. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm on my list is the Wright Brothers by uh, McCullough. Right. A- everybody I know who's read it just raves about it. Yes. I haven't gotten to it yet, but I think that's going to be my next next two. holiday um, read. Right. Read. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, any other, uh, you ever read fiction? Anything else? Unfortunately, catches? I don't read fiction, but I'm a huge movie fan. And, oh, really? And yeah, and I find, I I particularly like watching international cinema. Uh, and I find that watching international cinema is a great way of learning about the social fabric of another country. That's very so, interesting. So whether it's European, Iranian, but there's some great international cinema. Mm-hmm. And I find that that, for, so like, I don't think ever a week goes by when I don't watch one or two international movies. Really? Yeah, so I, this is a, a, a quite fascinating coincidence. Your podcast episode follows first Lawrence Levy, who was the CFO of Pixar, right. and then David Tuckman, who um, took channels like MTV and Nickelodeon and AM, right. AMC and uh, MGM and turned them into international brands. And he literally took all these various U.S. properties and turn them into, you know, I think those channels are now in 140 countries. Fascinating. Um, yeah. yeah, no, it's a really it's just an unusual, uh, interesting coincidence. How, how do you find these international films to watch? Is it Netflix or? No, I mean, like, I, I like doing it the old classical way, which is of going into a theater, locking mm-hmm. yourself in, you know, for two hours without without any access to technology, you know, and like seeing it, and the other passion, I and have you could do that in New York. There's plenty of international theaters. Yeah, you know, here. like in fact, uh, exactly. So, uh, and also like some of the film festivals. Like I watched, uh, mm-hmm. I was at the New York Film Festival in October. I think I watched a dozen movies. Right. Playing at Lincoln Center at one of the most you know spectacular places to watch a movie, right. the Alice Tully Hall. I find. I mm-hmm. mean, I just love sitting in Beautiful. there, or, or the Walter Reed Theater. So, um, I really like doing that, and going to film festivals. I think is a great way of of doing that. So, like, yeah, I went to. 
Telluride earlier this year. I've been to Venice, Cannes. I've been to these oh, really? places. So I think, you know, like I find it fascinating to go to film festivals. And in, and in New York, of course, you, uh, you have two film festivals, which uh, are great. The New York Film Festival, I think, is is like absolutely brilliant. Mm-hmm. And then uh, at a smaller level, uh, we have the Tribeca. Right. Uh, in the Nero's uh, Film April. Festival. Yeah. Yep. So I think that watching, going to film festivals, watching some international cinema, learning about the social fabric of another country through that. And of course, European cinema is just lifestyle voyeurism, right? I mean, you can just mm. watch any European cinema. Sure. And the setting is so spectacular and, you know, like the mannerisms are, are such, which are, uh, you know, where, you know, which are captured so well on camera that... Uh, it's uh, great fun to watch such movies. That That's really, really interesting. Um, so in the last few minutes uh, I have you for, let me ask you, what has changed about the emerging markets um, since you began following them, you know, 20 years ago? Well, they've become much more sort of structured now. I mean, when I started 20 years ago, it was a bit of a cowboy land, which more is... More frontier like, than exactly, emerging? Exactly, you know, like uh, the, the rules weren't entirely cl- cleared, how you got research was much more unstructured, and, uh, you know, like... Uh, and then you had all sorts of corporate governance issues in these markets. So I think it's that's become a lot better now uh, mm-hmm. uh, over time, and the integration is much more uh, real now. Uh, so I'd say that there's been a big improvement in terms of as far as emerging markets are concerned, but I still find traveling is very useful, uh, but I, the big change, I'd say, is the fact that it's a lot more structured now compared to the cowboy days of 20, 25 years ago when I first started looking at these countries. And actually, you answered my uh, the question I was going to ask you, what do you do to relax outside of the office, biographies and film festivals? Yeah. Um, let's jump to the last two questions. So you have to work with a lot of people right out of school, young people at, at Morgan Stanley. What sort of advice do you give to millennials or someone at the start of their career who say, hey, I'm interested in emerging market uh, investing? Um, you know, like I'm a bit sort of, I find it a bit presumptuous to give advice to people because I find that each one's to their own. I mean, I never followed anyone's advice while growing up, to be mm-hmm. honest with you, uh, because I was uh, at a very young age, I, I got very interested in writing and investing and just followed my passion. And sometimes at work, sometimes at doesn't work. And uh, I was about to come here in the US to do my PhD. And uh-huh. uh, someone from Morgan Stanley who liked my work uh, while hiring me basically told me that do you want to study or do you want to make money? I said, <laughs> I want to make money. And I didn't study more. And I think I learned more by sort of uh, working real time, but it works for some, it doesn't work for the others. So I find it presumptuous to give advice. But I think very important to know that there is no one size fits all formula. Mm-hmm. There is no mantra for success that you got to do this and right. that'll happen. But the but you got to find out who you are and sort of follow that passion. And and for me, my entire sort of thing is that you got to sort of, um, there's a line that someone told me very early on, which I followed to, which is that live life in parallel and not in series. Okay. Is, you know, which is that, like so many people at a young age love to plan. I'll do this five years from now. I'll put right. this off 10 years from now. Hey, if you can do it today, do it. Right. Who right. knows what's going to happen? Five, right. You years really from never now. can tell. You know, yeah. So I'd say that, like, f- at least for happiness, that's important. Now, whether that's a success formula, I don't know. But I think it makes you happier to live life in parallel than in series. Well, well, that's very humble of you to say. Who am I to say? You, you have achieved a certain degree of professional success, which I think certainly is why someone might be asking you for advice. But uh, I, I like your answer. I think that's a very interesting answer. And our final question. Um, what is it that you know about emerging markets today that you wish you knew 20 years ago? 
as I said, that emerging markets have really evolved a lot over uh, over time. But what I'm really happy with is that at least I've come up with now a structure of thinking about them. These ten rules, mm -hmm. right? I mean, like uh, because like often what happens when we speak about countries is not just true of emerging, but even of the U.S. or other developed countries is that we have these unstructured water cooler type conversations. Oh, this right. country looks good because of this. This country looks bad because I don't like that leader or something like that. I think what I'm really happy about is that at least I've been able to come up with, okay, these are the 10 things you should really look at. And this is how you should look at them. So money ball for emerging markets, a way of quantifying what's going on instead of the old myths and heuristics. Yeah, but I'm saying, yeah. And like also of eliminating as to what does not matter, like, you know, all these myths that education really matters for economic growth. Yeah, but the evidence is very mixed that the time it takes for education to move the needle for economic sure. growth is much longer than you and I can sort of be here. for. It, maybe, it's you know, better to have decades. it than not, but you're not going to wait 20 years exactly. before. Or 30, 40 years to, ha to hang my hat on that. And right. it's a chicken egg story as to which one comes mm. first. Is it good education or is it economic success, which then leads to the funding More good for, education. Uh, I, I mean, for good education. So I'd say that that is what I'd say that I wish I'd known back then. I think, but 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 that's the process of evolution, which is that you just learn these things over time. But the fact that we at least have 10 things, and I'm very uh, pleased to share that with the rest of the world so that I can have this debate about how to improve this system is what I feel good about. So if people want to find your work, where's the best place for them to look for you? We, we can at least mention the two books, Breakout Nation and Rise and Fall of Nations, I assume most of uh, the writing you do at Morgan Stanley is behind a research firewall. Is that correct? No, I mean, like, I'm on the investing side. So I'm on the investment management side. So I mm -hmm. don't write research for external good. But what I do write are op-eds very frequently. So Wall Street Journal, Wall Street Journal FT. FT, New York Times, mm -hmm. uh, and Foreign Affairs are typically... You couldn't get into any good publications? Uh, well, you're, <laughs> you're slumming it. Yeah. So I'd say that, you know, like... Uh, that uh, I'm fortunate like, to write for these uh, publications. So, okay, so, uh, so you're very so between Google and Amazon, you're very findable. I, I think so. <laughs> Rushir, thank you for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with Morgan Stanley's Rushir Sharma. Uh, if you enjoy this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, and you can see the other hundred and twelve or so uh, such conversations that we have had in the past. I would be remiss if I did not thank uh, Taylor Riggs, our head of. Um, I'm going to do that again. Let me let me see if I can get Taylor's name correctly. I would be remiss if I did not thank Taylor Riggs, who is our Booker Extraordinaire and and chases down these folks uh, for me in order to bring them here into the studio and share their thoughts with you. And Michael Batnick, our head of research, who helps me prepare all these insightful, thoughtful questions. Uh, we love your comments and feedbacks, and we have a specific feedbacks. What's feedbacks? Feedback. Be sure and write to us at our dedicated email address, mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Committed to bringing higher finance to lower carbon. Named the most innovative investment bank for climate change and sustainability by The Banker. That's the power of global connections. Bank of America, North America. Member FDIC.